Hello, everybody. Welcome to Unapologetic Live. I'm your host, Amla Benobi, and Taylor's in the house. What's up, everybody? What's up, everybody? We've had such a long day today. We just got into the studio about 10 minutes ago because we were over at my apartment setting up a home setup in my bedroom, which is very tiny. Taylor and Scott did all the work. I sat and worked on today's show and put out some videos for you guys on YouTube. You went and got lunch, so that was very helpful. I did also go and get everybody lunch. So, yes, I am very helpful. Thank you, Taylor. Uh, and you guys, if you want to check out what that home studio might possibly look at, you can go and follow me on Instagram. I put a little behind the scenes video and I'll actually be on Fox News tonight from my home studio, assuming everything works and Taylor and Scott did it right. <laughs> oh, don't put that on us now. That's the, that's the hard pressure. So yeah, if you guys want to watch me on Fox, I'll be on the Ingram angle at 7.40 Pacific time and that's 10.40 on the Eastern side of things. If you're not on the Pacific or Eastern side of things, uh, where, whatever that time is where you are. So we're going to do a pretty quick show today because we've got some things going on after an interview that you guys are going to see on our YouTube channel next week. Uh, I wanted to highlight this article that was written for Fortune.com by none other than Roland Fryer. If you guys have not heard that name before, I would love for you guys to go to YouTube, look up his name, and watch a documentary about his cancellation. Uh, I will try to link it down below or maybe pin a comment after the stream so you guys can check it out. He's got a very interesting story. He was a, a Harvard professor back in the day. He is no longer after this wicked cancellation that he was put through. Why? Because he said things that people didn't want to hear. Roland Fryer happens to be a black man who goes against the narrative, much like Tom Soule does when he talks about the disparity uh, among white people and people of color in this country. So he's done quite a bit of research on this, and now he's focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion. He wrote this article for Fortune.com called, It's Time for Data First, Diversity, Equity, and inclusion. Because right now, for those of you who don't know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is essentially an initiative that many corporations, uh, public schools, public institutions are taking on right now in this country as an effort to push for what they call an equitable future. So they're hiring more diverse candidates, hiring based on gender and race, which is where we see sort of affirmative action be ushered into these institutions and corporations. Often you'll hear employees come out and talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. We've seen the likes of Coca-Cola do their diversity, equity, and inclusion training, and that included teaching their employees how to be less white. Now, we hear things like that, and we go, that is absolutely insane. I can't believe people are going to work at a corporation like Coca-Cola, and that's what they're hearing at their staff trainings. Unbelievable. But these corporations seem to think that this is helpful. That this is going to help their future. It's going to help make things more diverse. It's going to bring about equity and inclusion for people of color, people with disabilities. And it's going to tamp down whiteness. You know, that evil, evil, oppressive thing that is whiteness. Now, Roland Fried has a different take on that. We're going to read through this article and sort of talk about the different things that he claims here. So let's start. I've spent hundreds of hours in diversity training over the past two decades. You poor thing, because I can only imagine the things that you've heard. Uh, from descriptions of federal anti-discrimination laws to academic-style seminars on the perils of implicit bias, microaggressions, or misgendering. Fun, fun stuff. Advocates of this kind of training have their hearts in the right place. That is actually a sentence that I like that he put into this particular piece. I truly do think that people who advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, things like critical race theory, truly have their hearts and minds in the right place, and they do want to help people and, and bolster a, a future of equality. Now, 
Could they be on the wrong track to get there? Absolutely. Could they somewhere along the way have been convinced that this was the right way to do it when it was really the wrong way to do it? Absolutely. So I do like that he he injected a little bit of compassion into this article that he's written. We are all familiar with comparisons showing that black people earn 50% less than white peers and women earn 70 cents for every dollar that a man earns. Yes, we hear this all the time. All the feminists talk about the 70 cents uh, that they make to a man's dollar. And often when we talk about systemic racism in America, that stat of black people earning 50% less is used to justify or to, uh, to bolster the argument. Now let's keep reading. However, the most popular tools used to combat disparities in the workplace have produced almost no measurable results. Are we shocked by that? Are we shocked that when you bring your 100 employees into a seminar and tell them how bad it is to be white and how good it is to be black and how we're going to do all these diversity initiatives within our, our practice, are, are we surprised that that doesn't work and that it doesn't actually help the black community? It doesn't actually help people of color? I imagine some people are shocked to hear that because the words sound really pretty, the words sound really wonderful, and it sounds like you are advocating for people and doing something that is right for them. And oftentimes, that's not the case at all. And I talk about this at length a lot because we can look at what are visible disparities amongst white people and people of color in our country. We see that in schooling when it comes to disciplinary actions, things like detention, expulsion. We see it in the workforce with uh, income and earnings. We see it in jail time with uh, people of color compared to white people. So there are many observable disparities between people of color and white people. But does that mean that those disparities are purely caused by racism? That's the question we must ask ourselves. And it's the question that we haven't been asking ourselves for what? seven, 60 decades right now, we've just been looking at these disparities and going, well, that number doesn't match that number. And one is white and one is black. So it must mean racism. And in doing that, we have hindered ourselves and handcuffed ourselves from actually solving these problems and evening out those disparities if that's what we wanted to do. Uh, so let's keep reading. The average impact of corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion training is zero. And some evidence suggests that the impact can become negative if the training is mandated. Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thought forcing your employees to do these trainings would have a negative impact? So, quote, statistical snapshots, end quote, which describe how employee outcomes differ by demographic group are another popular tool. These numbers cannot... provide proof of bias. Simple averages often mislead and importantly, crafting strategies based on misleading data often does more harm than good. Absolutely. And if we take this outside the argument of race or the subject of race, and we look at something like gender, we look at the gender pay gap. How often have you guys heard the stat that women make 70 cents for every dollar that men make? I've heard that a million times within my life. I subscribe to that belief for, for, Uh, numerous years and I was constantly talking about how we needed feminism how we needed to you know close that wage gap as everybody says but what did I do I looked at a disparity amongst men and women and because it was amongst men and women I cried patriarchy and said this is an oppressive nature the oppressive nature of our country holding down women and making them earn less and in doing so I shut off all possibilities for anything else being responsible for that outcome. When really I could have looked at when are women deciding to have children and leave the workforce? 
Does deciding to have children hinder them from moving up to these upper echelon jobs? Do women work the same amount of overtime as men? Are women receiving the same amount of education as men? Are women applying for the same type of jobs that men apply for? Are they applying for the same number of jobs that men apply for? There are so many questions that we can ask ourselves outside of the realm of patriarchy and feminism that could lead to that gap closing and closing and closing. But as a society, at least on the progressive end of things, we decided not to do that. And now we have all the big posters that say 70 cents to a man's dollar, when really it's nothing like that at all. Let's keep reading. Some business leaders in their determination to increase diversity leap directly from observing raw disparities to removing some information from application forms, another common practice meant to make workplaces more equitable. However, hiding information on applications often leads to worse outcomes for those it was intended to help, likely because hiring managers use race itself as a proxy for the information they're no longer allowed to see. Our intuition for how to decrease race and gender disparities in the workplace has failed us for decades. It's time to stop questioning and start using the scientific method. Remember, when we thought that the bubonic plague was caused by a triple conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars in the 40th degree of Aquarius? I do not remember that, but I'll take his word for it because Roland Fryard is a very smart man. Do you remember that, Taylor? That the bubonic plague was caused by a, a triple, triple conjunction. conjunction. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that, that one... Escapes me temporarily. I'm sure I'm sure I knew it before. This, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure yeah. I've heard that before. <laughs> so here's a three step approach uh, that can turn earnest intentions into good science. That's what I like to see. You notice how this article itself doesn't come out and go. They're the real ones who are racist and they're the ones trying to hurt white people and all these things. It's approaching it in in good faith and saying, you know what, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and think that you are implementing these policies, these trainings, and this critical race theory uh, initiatives with a good heart and with good intentions in mind. Now, the famous quote, you know, uh, this is not, policies are not about intention, they're about results. And I like that he's looked at this, he's judged them based on good intentions, but said, hey guys, the results are not adding up. You are actually not helping people. So let's keep reading here. Number one, to understand disparities. For decades, social scientists have shown that raw gaps in employment outcomes, like hiring or wages, the type of data typically provided to C-suite executives, misstate the amount of actual bias in an organization. This data omits many factors that are key to personnel decisions, factors that often vary by group, owing to disparities in society at large. Business leaders can and should work to address inequality in their communities, but they should not mistake society-wide gaps for bias in their own employees. One of the most important developments in the study of racial inequality has been the quantification of the importance of pre-market skills and explaining differences in labor market outcomes between black and white workers. I know this is a lot of words, but we're going to break this down and get into it. In 2010, using nationally representative data on thousands of individuals in their 40s, I estimated that black men earn 39.4% less than white men and black women earn 13.1% less than white women. Again, these are stats that we hear often. And hearing that, you go, oh my gosh, systemic racism is truly real. And look how much it is affecting not only black women, but black men in our country, black men increasingly so, 39.4%. That is a huge margin. Let's keep reading though. Yet, accounting for one variable, 
educational achievement in their teenage years reduced that difference to 10.9%, a 72% reduction for men, and revealed that black women earn 12.7% more than white women on average. So all he had to do was go into that data and for each of the people that they collected their incomes for, adjust for the amount of education they received in their teenage years. And if you equal all that out and adjust for that education, black men, the margin drops by, by 72%, which is insane. And for black women, you actually find that they get paid more than white women when you adjust for education. So what does that mean? It means that when you hear these hiring statistics and these income statistics and people cry racism and simply say that employers should be hiring a black women and black men at a higher income than they are now, what have you done? You've actually put on a blinder and turned a blind eye to the problem that's sitting right over there, and that is education. Now we can talk about whether educational standards have to do with racism, but are we gonna do that if you've simply said that employers should just hire black people with higher income? No. So as much as people who cry racism think that they're helping and think that they're doing something good, what you're actually doing is putting up a massive shield over other issues that we could be tending to day in and day out. And if you do that for a long period of time, like we have been doing for the past few decades, that educational problem does not get solved, does it? So in fact, it gets worse and worse and worse. And those margins, those margin uh, of difference with their income guess what that's going to do? It's going to increase and it's going to get worse and worse and worse, even though you can sit back after 20 years and go, what do you mean? We've done so many diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. How is this not changing the stats on this? Because you've ignored the actual problem. Let's keep reading. Recently, I worked with a network of hospitals determined to rid their organization of gender bias. The basic facts were startling. Women earned 33% less than men when they were hired, and their wages increased less than men once on the job. Yet, accounting for basic demographic variables known about individuals prior to hiring, these differences decreased by 74%. A problem remained, but it was an order of magnitude smaller than the unadjusted numbers implied. And I, I don't want to imply nefarious intentions, but if it's that easy, to simply adjust for one variable in these stats and to get a much more reasonable, a much more palatable <laughs> difference between the income of men and women. Why aren't we doing it? Because there are certainly people who are saying, hey guys, you should adjust for this, you should check this out. Why are they not listening? Is it because a number like 33% sounds far better than one that's reduced by 74%? Maybe. Is it because this is just the narrative that we've heard for so long that that's our story and we're sticking to it? Maybe. Is it just because people don't want to admit that they could be wrong about something that they've dedicated their entire ide ideological space in their brain to? Maybe. But these are all questions we should be asking ourselves. And in, in, in anybody who comes to the table and goes, no, this is the problem, I don't care if you adjust for numbers, you should question that person. Because that person wants to be right. <laughs> That person doesn't want to be proved wrong. Wouldn't it be so great if we proved all these people wrong and it actually wasn't an instance of racism or, or sexism or bigotry? That would be wonderful. So why would somebody be disingenuous about that and not want to hear those stats? Just a question I'd posit. S step two is to find the root causes of bias. Gonna plug in my computer here. Social scientists tend to categorize bias into one of three flavors, preference, 
information and structural. Preference bias is good old-fashioned bigotry. You're saying, I'm an employer, I think men work more than women do, so I'm gonna hire more more men, and when I hire women, I'm gonna hire them at a lower wage. That's your, your preference. Information bias arises when employers have imperfect information about workers' potential productivity and use observable proxies like gender or race to make inferences. This can also be seen as gender stereotypes. Structural bias occurs when companies institute practices, formally or informally, that have a disparate impact on particular groups, even when the underlying practices are themselves group blind. Employee referral programs can fall into this category. So employees come and they refer somebody and let's say disproportionately more white employees are referred than black ones. And because the employer got that employee referral, they hire the white people. It has a disparate impact on black people, but not because of bigotry, not because of some sort of stereotype that they've placed on them, simply because we had this structural bias set in place. So over the past 50 years, economists and other social scientists have developed brilliant ways of of statistically distinguishing between different types of bias. Gary Becker in 1993, in his 1993 Nobel Peace, uh, Nobel Prize acceptance speech, outlined one such statistical procedure known as the outcomes test. It operates by comparing the success rate of decisions across groups and then inferring whether different decision rules were used for different groups. For example, if women CEOs statistically outperform male CEOs, all else equal, that would suggest that a higher standard was applied to women in the selection process. This type of statistical test can be used for hiring, promotions, and attrition across an organization. In 2013, collaborators and I developed a similar test to detect information-based bias. Our approach uses the insight that if employers have information-based biases at the time of hiring, but then learn more about an employee's productivity once they are on the job, one would expect to see the returns to tenure within the company to be higher for the group that faced the initial bias. So if I'm an employer and I think white people work harder than black people, but I do hire a black employee and that black employee comes into work and completely blows my expectations out of the water, you would see that maybe my opinion would change about black employees and I would start to hire more or pay the ones that I have hired a better wage. Using a nationally representative data set of thousands of individuals, we found that there was a significant gap at the time of hiring for black candidates relative to white peers, but that as predicted, black candidates experienced a 1.1 percentage point higher return to tenure. So this bias is alleviated once the candidates are hired and once they are working uh, by, by quite a big margin. With the aforementioned hospital network, the data pointed to a structural bias in scheduling. Men and women who worked the same number of hours earned exactly the same wage. But men worked more hours due to how the company assigned schedules, not women's desire to work less. This is the key step that is missing in the DEI initiative I have seen in the past 25 years. A rigorous data-driven assessment of root causes that drives the search for effective solutions. In other aspects of life, we would not fathom prescribing a treatment without knowing the underlying cause. Hiding information on resumes when information bias is present is as effective as using alcohol baths to treat fever. So let's read that last part again. In other aspects of life, we would not fathom prescribing a treatment without knowing the underlying cause. Hiding information on resumes when information bias is present as as effective as using alcohol baths to treat a fever. 
And and that one sentence about prescribing a treatment without knowing the underlying cause is absolutely brilliant. If you went to a doctor and you're, you're ill as all get out, and the doctor goes, well, I don't know exactly what's causing this, but I want you to go home and drink six tubs of Kool-Aid, and that's going to fix whatever you have going on. You would look at that doctor and you'd go, you're absolutely crazy. And right now what we're doing as a society is going, you know what? I think that black people are oppressed. I think that women are oppressed. I think that people of color are oppressed based on the numbers that we're seeing here and the disparities that we're seeing among those numbers. And instead of diving into it and looking at the choices that employers make, the choices that employees make, the choices that black culture makes or that the gendered culture uh, comparing men and women, instead of doing that, we go racism, patriarchy, that's the prescription, and here's what you have to do to fix it. We're going to just take off all these fields off of our applications and simply look at somebody's race and gender and go, you're hired, and here's the income that you're going to earn for this position. So what is that going to do? Is that going to solve the underlying problems if we've never addressed them? In fact, we've never even gone to look and study what is actually happening. No. It's not, yet time and time again, we continuously go down that very same path. And if you don't put a barrier in front of those people and go, wait a second, why aren't we talking about the cultural problem here? Why aren't we talking about the issues of class? Why aren't we talking about the issues of parenthood? Why aren't we talking about the issues of education? We will get nowhere as a society. And yet people like Roland Fryard, who are, are brilliant enough to be working as Harvard professors and, and are sought out for this work and this research and the studying that they do, those people are silenced. Those people we don't want to listen to because he happens to be a black face that, that promotes a message that we don't typically see from black people. Yet if we simply listened to what he was saying, which is not excluding the, the possibility of racism and patriarchy being present in these decisions. He's not excluding that. He's saying, can we just be a little bit more scientific about it? Because I imagine the margin is a lot smaller than we're making it out to be. And, and that's exactly the argument that we've been making for, for quite some time now, and, and nobody wants to listen. And I find it hard to really figure out why people with such good intentions wouldn't want to listen to that. Do you have any thoughts <laughs> on why? Well, it, you know, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, our friend Tom Sowell's book, Dim Discrimination and Disparities, mm -hmm. and, and that whole book being about just the fact that you can identify a disparity exists does not mean that discrimination occurred. Right. And uh, it seems like there's just this new, the new way of thinking that has become mainstream in America, thanks to the media, thanks to academia, thanks to just the way our culture has evolved, is this narrative based. Then the narrative is that America is racist, that systemic racism is this problem. And mm -hmm. when you, all you need to find evidence of that predetermined belief is any disparity. And so you're not looking to find the truth and the true causes of the problems that America's facing, you're looking for evidence to support your predisposed conclusion right. that America is racist. So now, oh, found this disparity. See, that's uh, that's evidence of racism, systemic racism. And what are the solutions to that? Well, it's imposing DEI trainings that 
according to this new evidence now, are ineffective. And then right. it's what? Dismantling the system. It's voting me into power and people who think like me who acknowledge all of this systemic problems and acknowledge all the systemic racism. And surely uh, we who support these DEI initiatives and, and enforcing equity on society, mm-hmm. we're going to bring uh, restoration and make everything better. And all of this is coming at the expense of the truth. It's coming yeah. at the expense of nuanced thinking. It's, it's coming at the expense of actually understanding the problems that are driving disparate outcomes in society. And uh, and then solving them. How you can never solve a social problem if you don't understand the cause of it in the first place. And we're mm-hmm. misdiagnosing the problem. And how you like to your Kool Aid point, yeah. you cannot solve a problem that you don't understand. Exactly. And it just what is so frustrating, really, to read this is one to know that Roland Fryer was ousted from his intellectual community for the work that he's doing, which is so clearly uh, helpful and pivotal to changing the discussions we're having around these issues. But two, that the solution seems so easy. It seems absolutely so easy to fix some of these problems that we are, are experiencing. And I'm going to read these last two paragraphs before the, of this article before we close out of the show today. I think your screen went out again. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. We constantly have these technical issues, guys. Let's, let's finish up these last two paragraphs here. So he writes, solutions that yield measurable results can be substantiated into company policy, while those that don't should be discarded. It's as simple as that. If you're doing DEI trainings in your, in your uh, organization or your company, for three months, six months, whatever it is, the time period that you're doing this, and no measurable positive results are found, maybe you don't do that next quarter. Maybe you throw that out and you go, okay, that didn't solve the problem. We need to workshop that again. In the case of the hospital network, once a small change was made to the structure of their scheduling, gender differences were reduced. Despite countless hours spent in training and seminars, their results were unchanged for years. The solution was hidden in plain data. But we don't want data. We don't want facts. We don't want the studies. We don't want the research. We want the feeling of knowing there is some oppressive force on us that we are constantly battling against because then we are heroes. Then we are victors. Then we are people who are changing the world, if not changing the world, abolishing the system. But guess what? You don't have to abolish the system. It turns out you can actually conserve it, tweak a few of the gears, make it spin again, and then it starts working. And that's all you have to do. But it sounds so powerful to say that this is disproportionately affecting me. So I myself am going to take it down. I'm going to break down the bones of this system and crush it. And we'll build something new in the wake of the destruction that we've created. But that's not the solution. And in fact, the outcomes do zero, if not have a negative impact on the people you claim to help. He finishes up while writing, this will seem heretical to some. But it barely scratches the surface of what's possible with the data-first approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. More corporate leaders should be trying to solve diversity challenges in the same way they solve problems in every other aspect of their business. Through intelligent use of data, rigorous hypothesis training, and honest inference about what is working. You would never approach a business any other way. And why is it that we cannot approach these problems in the same way that we do our our business? Because that's what it simply is. At its very core, it's a matter of, of numbers and comparing those numbers and fixing and hoping to equalize them in a way that benefits the people who were getting the short end of the deal before. That's simply all it is. 
Yet we approach it with these visceral, horrible feelings of racism and patriarchy and bigotry and discrimination. And what does it do? Nothing more than muddy the waters to where when you look down, you can't see what the actual problem is. So what we need to do is hold off for a little bit, let the water clear, and then look and go, oh, it's actually just a scheduling problem. Oh, actually, if we go back and sort of tweak the education system a little bit and, and, and bolster up our people of color in our communities that need uh, educational success the most, that might just fix what we were dealing with there. Oh, it's the overtime schedule. That seems to be a problem there. Oh, maybe we need to account for people who, who want to have kids. Oh. Maybe we need to look at the fact that some people didn't grow up with two parents and that can cause a little bit of an inequitable problem moving forward into adult life. But if the waters are muddied with racism and patriarchy and systemic oppression, guess what we're doing? Absolutely nothing. And if we continue on this route, I will make the prediction. I do not like to make predictions because uh, who can predict the future? But I will say that if we continue on the route that we're currently on without addressing what are the actual problems creating these disparities, we will be having the same discussion in 20 years. And when I am 42 years old, I promise you, I do not want to be sitting in front of this camera having the same discussion that I'm having right now in 2022. But we will be if we do not listen to what is written here. And instead of going into our feelings and emotions, steer ourselves towards maybe a little bit of data, maybe doing the research to truly help people. So bring this up, bring this article up next time you have a discussion with somebody about diversity, equity, and inclusion, because I imagine you guys are having these discussions in your lives. You are seeing these discussions play out. Your kids are going to school and hearing about critical race theory and DEI. And we're about to actually have next week on the program a father who is suing his schooling system for the way that it has approached diversity, equity, and inclusion with his own children in the schooling system. And these are the things that we need to do. And when we do them, come armed with these hard facts and you have a brilliant ex-Harvard professor who is willing to put in the work to armor you with these facts. And I learned a lot just simply reading this article today uh, about what we can do moving forward. It's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to uh, disagree with it. It's another thing to put in the work, call it out and have the facts to back it up. And that's what we hope to do for you with this show today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Did you learn something from today's article? It's a little highbrow. When I was reading it, I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a couple reads before I <laughs> go in and, and do the show for today. But let me know if you heard anything new. I certainly did. I didn't realize all the little adjustments that we can make and how people actually approach looking into the disparities among uh, different races and genders. So comment that down below. If you enjoy the show, please like, subscribe, click the notification bell to be notified every single day when we go live. That is Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. And listen to us on Spotify. Google Play, Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review on there as the leftists love to leave us one-star reviews. They would leave us zero if they could because they don't like to hear what they have, what we have to say sometimes. Some of them do. And if you are a leftist watching right now or a progressive or a liberal or somebody who doesn't typically fall on my side of the aisle on things, I appreciate you listening and watching. And let me know, are there points where you disagree with me, with Roland Fryer? Would you like to see diversity, equity, and inclusion go down this route? Are you uh, fine with the way it is working now? Drop that in the comments down below. We appreciate you watching and listening. And I will see you guys tomorrow. Bye. Thank you.